listener, KZMU News is out today for the holiday weekend. So tonight, we're bringing you a story from our partners at KJZZ. In the West, ongoing drought is forcing us all to think about how we use water differently. One farmer in northern Arizona is using ancient practices to grow food. Lauren Gilger with our partners at KJZZ visited Hopi farmer and University of Arizona faculty member Michael Kotutwa Johnson. He's north of Flagstaff, where his fields are located. And he explained the ways he grows corn, squash, and beans, and why he wants native seeds repatriated back to indigenous communities like his. When Michael Kotutwa Johnson walks through his fields in the high desert of northern Arizona, he can hear the corn talk to him. Early in the morning or in the evening, it's just that you can hear them talking because they're just, they just, they just, it's a cool sound. It's Hopi corn, an ancient variety that Johnson's family has been growing on this land on the Hopi reservation for nearly 100 years. So when you're out here hoeing weeds, you're out here talking to them and you're also, you know, t- you know touching them and um, you get very intimate with this, with this corn, you know, you can... You can, you know, you can hear the, hear the leaves rustling and they're just, they're just waking up, you know, kind of neat. The corn is not just a crop to Johnson. It's a family member of sorts, a being for sure, and part of a long tradition his grandfather taught him and he carries on today. Uh, I'm growing a, a few things. I'm growing about four different varieties of Hopi corn and uh, some beans and also um some gourds and squash up here. But looking around this windy, high desert field, you won't see the kind of farmland you might expect. For one, there's not a tree in sight for miles. The dirt is dry and dusty. You can see Flagstaff San Francisco peaks in the distance. But there, like a kind of mirage in the desert, are bright green stalks popping out of the ground. It's, it's kind of unique out here. It's, it's kind of like a, a semi-desert out here. We don't get any irrigation. This corn that we're looking at is an early corn that I put in in an April, the end of April, and so it hasn't had water in over 60 days, but you can tell by the vibrancy and the greenness of it how well it's doing. That's right. He grows these crops without any irrigation. It's called dry Hopi farming. It's an ancient practice that uses only the water that falls from the sky to grow crops every year. That's about 6 to 10 inches of annual rainfall in this region. Without irrigation, Johnson uses a variety of techniques perfected over millennia to grow his crops. From planting clumps of seeds six feet apart from one another to planting seeds 18 inches deep to seep whatever moisture lives in the earth. We had an abundance of snowfall this year, and that's what really makes our crops thrive, and that's why we don't have to irrigate. Uh, Our next big thing will be the monsoon rains to fill out the kernel cobs and also to fill out the bean pods, uh, which will happen usually usually at the last week of July. That's when it hits us out here. But everything by then should be pretty well grown, start be starting to tassel and everything like that, and we should have a pretty good harvest this year. Johnson isn't just a farmer, although he has taken on the stewardship of his family's land and doesn't plan on letting it go anytime soon. Today, people also call him Dr. Michael Kotutwa Johnson. He's an assistant specialist in indigenous resiliency at the School of Natural Resources and the Environment at the University of Arizona and a sought-after resource on his culture's farming practices worldwide. 
I myself call myself about a 253rd generation farmer here. You know, I like to kind of joke around about that because, you know, I have colleagues in Iowa and Nebraska who are farmers, too, and they can only get about two, three generations back. So it's kind of fun. It was summer on his farm when I visited him there, months before any crops would be ready for harvest. But it was clear walking through the rows with him and talking about the practice, it's not really about how much is harvested. That much, he feels, is out of his hands. It's about tradition and culture and history. We're an agricultural society. You know, we, I would feel like we're kind of like America's original farmers. You know, we've been doing this for the get-go. We don't usually use mechanical uh, machinery, but we've developed over the time a one-row cultivator, a straight-blade cultivator to handle the weeds, and we also have a one-row deep planter because our planting depths range from anywhere to six and a foot and a half deep, and so we've adapted planters to do that too. So when we say dry Hopi farming, like you're talking about not using irrigation at all, and and you do a lot of things to make sure the plants still grow, right? Like you mentioned these corns and the spacing and how they're, you know, much further apart than a cornfield I would see in the valley, right? Those are like packed together. So this is knowledge that sounds like it's been passed down for a long time, but there are a lot of different techniques, it sounds like. Yeah, there are a lot of techniques. You know, for example, if you can look around out here, you'll see clumps of plants. You'll have about eight or nine uh, stalks in one clump per one hole. And that's basically to help them protect each other from the, from the heat, the heat of the sun and also allows them to self-pollinate pretty easily because they're all next to each other, so they basically pollinate each other. And so spacing is not really much of a problem out here. Um, and it is, you know, the soils that we use in the monsoon rains brings in all new soils. The, the pH level is on this. Anybody who knows anything about agriculture, pH is a, is a, is a very important concept. It's about 8.3, 8.8 still after 60 years of just continuous corn. Uh, there's no sense to rotate crops out here because... Uh, we get that new flux of soils every, pretty much every year, and so that's the main thing. And the other thing, too, is that when we, when we take our ears of corn, we just knock down the plant, leave the plant on the ground, and then what happens the following winter is they act like snow catchers. As the snow blows across the field, it catches up in those areas, and then we plant in between the rows the following year, the, the leftover rows. And so that's where your, your nutrient values are, and that's where your moisture's at. And so you get used to it, and you don't really question it. Only, only when I went to school you know, at Cornell University when I got my undergrad way back in 99 did I have to question myself because they wanted to know how I was doing these things. And uh, they were amazed, and they're probably still amazed. And so that's, that's where I'm at right now. Let's walk around a little. So you, are these corn as well? These are yeah, much these smaller. Are, yeah, these are smaller corn. I, I plant out here every couple of weeks. I put in a new, a different variety of corn every couple of weeks are the same variety. Just because I want to make sure that something, I get something like that. The, the moisture level changes over the, over time. So you put your early corn in first, see how that does. And then, you, and then every couple of weeks you plant another variety out here. I was told to do that because we're trying to optimize what the soil moisture is going to give us and see which one does the best. But this year we've had a problem with cutworms, so sometimes we have to replant. So, you know, it's one of those things out here. You know, we don't have any pesticides, herbicides, any of that stuff that we use. It's all manual labor, very labor-intensive, but the human well-being produced from that is important because you get healthy, you get strong, you know, um, and plus the food you produce is about 10 times higher nutrient value than the stuff you buy in the store. 10 times higher. So this is, you've talked about the rainfall, the pH level in the soil. Now you're talking about the 10 times nutrient value. It sounds like incredibly scientific. It is scientific because uh, people wanted me to make it that way. <laughs> I think that's the, that's the problem with that. You know, they can't, a lot of people can't understand that what we do is, is based upon 3,000 years of knowledge, 3,000 years of replication. 
you know, and we need to move beyond just looking at the the practices and the and the processes. We need to look at the values of why we do this and what and why we're farmers. I think that's most important. That's really interesting. So you're saying, like, as you studied this in academia, essentially, you kind of discovered the science behind what you sort of innately knew to be true just from learning it for your entire life? Yeah, it's kind of funny like that. I always like to say, like, uh, you know, our system proves the science. <laughs> it doesn't go the other way around, you know, and um, because we have a lot more crop science uh, integrated through our traditional means than what Western science does today. You know, our system goes back 3,000 years old. Western commodity crops only go back about maybe 150 years when they started industrializing it. And so, yeah. you know, our knowledge base is, is way, way beyond anything that Western science is as far as crop management can imagine. I wonder also, because I, I know that you also study this in a, like, almost a spiritual capacity, right? Like, you, you and in the Hopi culture, look at the seeds as, as sacred, as, as, as family. Yeah, we do. And I think, you know, that's one of the important things that people have to understand, that these things are life. You know, life produces life. So every time we get a cob and every time we hold that little cob up into the, into the air, we can see just new generations coming in to come out. And so we take care of them just like we take care of ourselves. And uh, that's very important because here in the United States, you know, indigenous people don't really have the right to their, their to their own seeds or the intellectual property uh, because of the Plant Variety Protection Act. And so... I'm trying to make changes on that. One of the biggest things that I'm trying to do is trying to make sure that seeds, uh, indigenous seeds, are also looked at as cultural patrimony under the Native American Grave Repatriation Act. And they should be because that should give us the intellectual properties we need to basically protect these seeds and also repatriate them from museums to put them back into the communities and raise them out again. Are they in museums? Is that a thing you can go and view like at a Smithsonian? Yes, they are. A lot of museums have, have our seeds from their archaeological digs. You know, whether or not they're, vi- they're viable or not, uh, that remains determined. But we sure would like to have some of those back. They're, they're like our boarding school. They're like the boarding school children. They've been taken away from us, and we want to have them back home again. So bring this home for a little bit. Like when you talk about seeds as family, as intellectual property, how does this feel to you personally? Like you come out here and sing to the seeds? Like there are ceremonies involved. Yes, there's a lot of ceremonies involved. You know, these things have life. Um, and I think, you know, they, in my mind, they're almost, they're persons. And so uh, a lot of the work that I'm trying to do is that. They're very, very sacred to us. Uh, they've adapted to our environment. They've changed with us as we've changed as, as people. And so they're taken care of as such. And so I wish people could understand that, that these things are real life to us. And they're very, very important that we, that we get these back to the Native communities where they came from. It's it's an incredibly different way of looking at the earth, right, and at life in general. Yes, it is. It's kind of like a really big re- uh, reciprocal relationship, a back-and-forth sharing relationship, I think, that, you know, we're trying to do. You know, like when we look at regenerative agriculture, they're still stuck in the processes and the, and the techniques of that. You know, they should really be looking at what makes this 80% of biodiversity that's managed by on 25% of the land, only by 5% of the population, which are what our indigenous, what our indigenous people are doing right and what, what is allowing them to do that right. And to me, it's their underlying cultural belief system, their value system. You know, here in America, we do have a value system, but it's, it's far from where it should be in order to take care of each other as, as families and as people. 
Is this the same field that you've worked with your grandfather and your dad when you were a kid? Yeah, it is. You know, it hasn't changed much. Even the fence posts are still here. They're cedar fence posts. And so, you know, that's I, did a lot, I spent a lot of time out here as a kid, especially hoeing weeds, you know. And I didn't like to come out here because, you know, we only had, uh, you know, one channel out here from Flagstaff. And I spent a lot of time just hoeing weeds out here, planting and uh, just running around as a kid. So uh, what are your memories of that? Like, obviously hard work, it sounds like, and kids always don't love hard work, clearly. But <laughs> did you enjoy it in a way? Like, do you have fond memories of it? Yeah, I do. You know, I, I was. it was a time of my life, you know, where, you know, when you're a kid, you, a lot of things are fun. But it was a time of my life that, you know, as I reflect back onto it, very important as far as, you know, where I'm at today. You know, I have a bigger brother and a little sister, and they don't come out here much at all. And so uh, it kind of integrated to me, and, it, and, it, and it's, it brought me back home. And so this is my real home out here, and I really, really enjoy it. So you went to Cornell, and you obviously continued academic work after that. You're a professor now. It sounds like it's really combined with your academic and your professional purpose as well. Yeah, you know, I, I work for the um, University of Arizona. My home department is the School of Natural Resources and the Environment, but a lot of that work is extension. And so a lot of my work is, is, is going out and outreaching to tribal communities and other communities who may need my help. Uh, but a lot of what I'm really trying to do, especially with the Indigenous Resiliency Center that I'm a part of at the University of Arizona, is bring recognition, recognition first to the contributions we've made as Indigenous people because we can't really talk about equity until we're recognized. See, we're still in too many ways stuck on in black and white on museum walls. But here I am out in my field doing the same thing my ancestors have been doing for over 3,000 years, but I'm just not wearing a loincloth. I'm wearing a nice shirt and some pants. <laughs> there are certain ways the times have changed. Yeah, there are certain ways the times have changed, and clothing's one of them. But, you know, I, really not much has changed as far as our system. You know, I've got photographs uh, that go back 100 years, and you can see, comparing what I'm doing now and what I'm doing now, that the management system has not changed that much at all, if any. And so we're still doing the way we're doing it because it works. Is there a reason these four posts are out here in the middle of the field? Yeah, I'm going to build what they call a kisi. That's going to be a place that I'm going to sleep sometimes in the afternoon. So I'm going to put a roof on it and shade in there and sleep out there. Because a long time ago, before we, you know, we had all these homes out here, uh, the men would spend a uh, majority of their day out in the fields, and then they would tend to their fields, and then they would go home in the evening time. Uh, but they would basically also sleep out here, too, because if you leave your field for too long, then things happen. Bad things happen, like like, like a deer would come in, or or you won't be able to see a cutworm or stuff like that. But you got to be out here, because these plants, are, like I said, are living human beings, so they don't like to be left by themselves, too, especially when they're children like this. They're just real small, and they're just now coming of age. So I know you do a lot of, you said outreach, and you mentioned when I got here a couple of the groups that have just been here, right? Like little kids, college students who come out and study this, indigenous people who maybe aren't as connected to this. How do you feel about the 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 sort of teaching aspect of this farm and like showing people what it is that you do and the importance of it? Well, you know, I think the first thing that I'm trying to do is, is, is teach my own, you know, my own community members, the youth out here. That's the most important thing I do first. You have to take care of your community first before you take care of others. But for the most part, I really like to have people come visit me out here. This is a unique place to be. It's away from the villages, and so you're not intruding on anything that's going on up there. And it is a good place to not only do, you know, I wouldn't say research, but just come out here and see what's going on. There's, this is a different way of doing agriculture totally. So 
I wonder if you're going about this like without irrigation, are there years it just doesn't happen? Like is climate change affecting this ancient practice? Yeah, it, it has. You know, I, I know I've, I've been watching this field for a number of years over the last 10 years. Uh, sometimes we have a crop, sometimes we don't. It does affect it because of the winter moisture that, that comes in here and also the monsoon rains. And so I just feel like, you know, this that has affected us. But, you know, as Hopi people, we've adapted. We've adapted many times, you know, over the last 3,000 years. We've had 200-year droughts. We've adapted. Sometimes we had to move, but then we came back. Uh, it's just us, you know, going through another cycle again. This year is a good, a good year, and so we just take advantage of a good year. Also, you know, we're smart enough to plant us to plant enough to last us in a good year like this to try to last us three to five years seed-wise. That's something that we were told to do and things like that. And so you can see all the vegetation out here, how green everything is pretty much, and uh, how, how much soil moisture is in the ground because we're able to look at some of this. Some of this vegetation will tell us how deep we need to plant, how far we need to plant, just by what we see in the springtime. Sometimes I like to do a check. This year, for example, when I was putting in one of my posts out here for my fence, you know, I was able, I was digging down three feet and moisture was still there. So that's, that, these, these corn will do fine. They'll just keep growing. So where does the sort of effort stand right now in terms of recognition like you talked about and and the effort you, you've been undergoing for some time to try to get recognition, patrimonial recognition for these seeds? Well, the recognition's coming along real good. I'm working on something very special here. I'm, I'm meeting with the park superintendent at Mesa Verde National Park and or we're talking, opening discussions, or have been having discussions about doing an indigenous crop up there, but it's on Pueblo agriculture, because that was the home of the 23 Pueblos that are in New Mexico, Texas, and Arizona now. And so for the National Park Service to open up their doors and open up uh, what used to be our land, you know, to, to get us to plant up there again, to bring back some of these, these varieties home uh, where they once were, I think is a tremendous opportunity to bring that recognition, because not only will we talk about this history and the historical part, we'll also talk about the indigenous ingenuity, how we raise these things like you're looking at here right now, how we're able to raise these things with no irrigation, probably about 90 days, 120 days of no irrigation. That's amazing. Thank you so much, Michael, for having me out. I appreciate it. You're welcome very much. I appreciate it. You come back again. That was Lauren Gilger with our partners at KJZZ visiting Hopi farmer and University of Arizona faculty member Michael Kotutwa Johnson, just north of Flagstaff. KZMU News is out today for the holiday weekend. Tomorrow at 6 p.m., join us as we rebroadcast a cozy story about our local living room, the Moab Library.